Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. Now that we have the century comfortably on the board here at Cocktail College, the helmet's back on, we're stood at the crease, and we're ready to keep smashing those fours and sixes. Apologies to our American listeners for that cricket reference, but what I mean to say is, when we first conceived Cocktail College, the idea was never that the show would take a one-and-done approach to drinks. As we've learned many times along the way, bartenders, historians, and tax attorneys who happen to write books about cocktails have heated and often varying opinions on this subject matter. Now, that's not to say there aren't countless cocktails we've yet to cover. There are, and we look forward to doing so. But on today's show, we're going to re-examine that most iconic of classics, the martini, and with none other than Dave Wondrich. For those who aren't familiar with Mr. Wondrich, I'd say pause the show right now, select any of our other episodes, and you can bet the last two drops in your bitters bottle that his name will absolutely come up. But for a slightly quicker refresher, Dave has, for decades, been at the forefront of chronicling and uncovering cocktail history. He's a James Beard award-winning author, the editor-in-chief of the Oxford Companion to Spirits and Cocktails, I'm going to take a breath here, the resident drinks historian and advisor at Flaviar, and co-host, along with Noah Rothbaum, of the Fix Me a Drink podcast. So without further ado, people, it's episode 102. It's Wondrich, it's Martinis, and it's all right here on the Cocktail College podcast. Absolute Scorchio here today in Manhattan. <laughs> Isn't it though? <laughs> We're in the Vine Pair podcast studio, the Cocktail College studio, uh, with a man who needs absolutely no introduction. So I'll say simply this, welcome. Mr. Thanks. David Wondrich. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. It's great to be here. It's it's great to be doing something in person also, you know. Absolutely. Uh, you know, there, there's, there's a different vibe when you're yeah, recording in person. Yeah. And also, you know, this is your first appearance on this podcast, maybe hopefully the first of many, but you've been kind of a constant companion over the years here because I feel like, especially when we dive into some of the historical sections, your name comes up all the time because of the wonderful work you've done. And before we get into today's topic, I did just want to ask about that. Like, how did you get into chronicling the history of cocktails as a as a profession? I hated my job. I mean, that's really what it was. I was an English professor. I, I, you know, I'd gotten a PhD in comparative literature and got a tenure track English job here in New York City, which is so rare. But it was miserable. I just I couldn't deal with it. I didn't like that style of writing. I didn't like any anything about it. So I started writing about music. And a friend of mine who uh, knew that, you know, I wrote about other th- things like that called me up one day uh, and said, you know, as you know, I'm the director of uh, new media for Hearst Magazines, which was a, a weird new job that nobody kind of knew anything about. And he said, uh, this is my friend Josh Mack, well, we've got a project at Esquire and uh, I was wondering if you could do it. It has to do with... Uh, adapting one of their old cocktail books for the web. And I am I was like, no, I'm a junior professor. I've got no time in the world. And he says, well, it pays $3,000. <laughs> so I said, I will start on that right away because as a junior professor, $3,000 was money, money. And so uh, about 20 minutes into the job, I was like, hey, this is really fun. And uh, 
I had a couple of cocktail books, and I'd always liked cocktails, but I never paid that much attention to them. Uh, but I did have a couple cocktail books that I'd picked up and used rec used bookstores, and uh, I looked things up and I said, "Wait a minute, that's not right," or "This needs more detail." And next thing you know, I had a weekly column for the uh, for Esquire's website. And within a year, I was at the magazine itself. So Wow. And, and roughly what kind of time would that have been? Uh, I started uh, working on the old Esquire book in December 1999, right when uh, Milk and Honey opened. I was going to say, you know, it's, yeah. it's, it's so interesting how a lot of these things, how, how a lot seemed to happen then. We had Greg Beaumont recently just talking about mm -hmm. as well about Cocktail Kingdom or, or you know, um, I think his... Mud Puddle Press. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that was around a similar time, I think. I think that's so interesting. Also, the music writing background, too. It's funny, you know, how some of the most prolific writers in their field, you, you know, look at uh, Jonathan Gold, you know, Rest yeah, in yeah, Peace, yeah. you know, that's how he started and then went on. I don't know. Maybe well, that's... Well, here, here's the thing about music writing. I don't know if I'm allowed to curse on this, uh, this Actively thing. encouraged. Uh, you can't make a fucking penny at it. <laughs> really? Oh, it's so hard. <laughs> it's so hard. And I wrote a book and everything, but... Uh, it sank without a trace when Robert Criscow got angry at the uh, New York Times book review for asking for edits and uh, placed his review of it in the Seattle Weekly instead. So that was the end of that. <laughs> that was my one chance with that with that thing to get like some some readers. But anyway, so and I, I didn't make any money at, at at writing about music, but it was very fun mm -hmm. and it was cool. And I was writing at the Village Voice and uh, for the Sunday New York Times. So those were good gigs. And do you find yourself tending more toward like when it comes to writing? Do you prefer the the kind of book side of things, or the you know the call the more regular columns, or maybe even the massive projects like the Oxford Companion? Which uh, not those <laughs> <laughs> uh, done with that. Uh, but uh, well, right now I'm I'm finishing up a book, and uh, I really miss uh, column writing because I'm not doing that because I'm finishing up the book. Mm -hmm. But when I'm doing too much column writing, I really I want to write on. I want to work on books because it seems more consequential mm. after doing all this research, et cetera. Yeah. So you know, ideally, it would be some combination of the two. Isn't it also? I mean, I've heard from uh, some of the writers that we work with as well, who also do books, that like that process can be a great inspiration for articles where you're like, this is a real fun little tidbit, and like maybe oh, yeah. I'll turn oh, that yeah. into an article afterwards. No, uh, while doing the Oxford Companion, I did that over the course of nine years. I did other things too, thank God. But uh, <laughs> while, while doing that, uh, a lot of the stuff I researched for it ended up as articles for the, for the Daily Beast in particular. Mm -hmm. I wrote a lot of articles for that uh, that were quite long, mm -hmm. uh, you know, detailed dives into things because I needed to know. And one of those, well, maybe it was part of that. I'd love to hear. But one of the things, you know, listeners will already be aware. We're covering the martini today. This is not a a riff on the martini. This is not a new technique for the martini. This is the first time we're just going back. We're revisiting a cocktail. Mm. It's the most iconic cocktail. And it's, you know, listeners are also very well aware. It's my favorite drink. One thing that really changed my thinking about the martini was reading something you wrote about its ties to the Manhattan and how maybe those were one in the same drink at one point. I hope I'm not getting that wrong, but I'd love to. No, you're not. Yeah, yeah. let's dive into the history of it and, and, and your findings there because I find that fascinating. Well, you know, it goes back to the uh, introduction of vermouth in America, which was it had come in in the early 19th century in limited amounts for immigrant communities. 
So, you know, in San Francisco during the gold rush, there were a lot of French there. And uh, there was French vermouth available. Same with New Orleans. A little Italian vermouth trickled in now and then when ships came in. You know, trading ships the way they worked, they'd uh, sell their cargo and they'd buy whatever they could buy and bring it over and see if they could sell it, see if there was a market for it. So you saw it occasionally, but after... Italy reunified in the 1860s or or unified, there was more capital there and more interest in exporting, especially up in Torino, which was the industrial capital. And and suddenly you see like a concerted effort to send Italian vermouth over and the Americans are like, what the hell do you do with this? You first see people using it as bitters, so just a few drops in a cocktail. That's in the 1860s. 1870s, it seems to be... There are very few just like kind of rare pop-ups where you see like somebody making a cocktail with wine, which probably was vermouth, or there's a vermouth cocktail or something, which would just be like vermouth and bitters. But uh, there's not there's not a lot. But suddenly in 1882, uh, there's this Gotham report that was uh, uh, it wasn't quite syndicated. Some guy shared his report with various small local newspapers around America. So far, I've found like five or six. I'm sure there were a lot more. None of the big ones. It was just this little report. And he says, he's talking about what people are drinking in New York. And he mentions the Manhattan cocktail, which was whiskey and vermouth. Great. We've got the Manhattan, you know, on the board right there. Mm -hmm. Solid with like uh, what's in it and where it is and everything. The next time we see the Manhattan, it's a guy in Chicago saying, oh, it's gin and vermouth. <laughs> I was like, okay. But then you got to step back and like kind of look at what those words meant. Vermouth, okay, that's vermouth. But like gin, America mostly drank Dutch gin at the time, and Dutch gin is basically flavored whiskey. And if you mix Geneva and vermouth versus like young rye whiskey and vermouth and taste it, especially if you use a lot of vermouth and bitters, it's pretty hard to break it down and say, oh, that's which is which, you know? Mm-hmm. So there's no drink press then. Cocktail books are published by little presses and, uh, you know, distributed locally. There's no massive like, hey, there's a new cocktail book out. Everybody run and get it. Everything was done by word of mouth and uh, – you can easily see these two drinks kind of being confused, you know, or the or the the the, the main idea was it was a regular cocktail with vermouth in it, mm-hmm. and a regular cocktail could be a gin cocktail or a whiskey cocktail. Those were the two big ones at the time. The brandy cocktail was kind of fading. The rum cocktail never really took off, mm-hmm. and we didn't. We had Applejack, but not a lot of other spirits like peach brandy. That was too expensive. So, and so these would have been, um, you know, when you're when you're naming the spirit in there, you're using probably or most likely that 1806 kind of formula and definition. So mm-hmm. the brandy cocktail would have been just that brandy, sugar, water, bitters. Exactly, exactly. And so then you you split the uh, base with uh, half vermouth, which is what most of the early recipes were: half vermouth and half spirit. And it's a lighter drink and uh, a little bit less intoxicating, but it's still got the texture and richness of a, of a full mm-hmm. strength cocktail, which is nice. You're not cutting it with water or fruit juice. And where know? are we at this point with ice, uh, specifically oh, ice. Oh, yeah, for the yeah, Manhattan? Yeah. Stirred with ice, yep. uh, strained. You know, that wasn't a problem at all. I mean, Americans were doing that. Bartenders were fully up on that. You had all the little patent strainers and 
all, all the gear. Oh wow! So by, that's already in full yeah, flow by, by this by, point. Yeah, by the 1880s, the bartender's kit. Uh, it's really changed very little since then. Oh wow! The materials have changed some. Uh, stainless steel came in in 1918, I think, and uh, before that, it was copper or brass alloy with silver plating, usually mm-hmm. or nickel plating. Nice. But all, all that, all the gear was there. And so then that kind of game of uh, probably predates it. I'm not sure in the history here, but that kind of game of telephone. So, oh, yeah. so in Chicago, it becomes a gin drink, but actually it probably did still resemble what we think of as a Manhattan today. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, was, it was pretty close. It, it, by like 1884, it starts differentiating and, you know, people have a firmer handle on it. And there's like, well, there's the whiskey version and there's the gin version. And what do you call the gin version and what kind of gin? People kind of decided, and, and you really see them differentiating when people started using Old Tom Gin instead of Geneva, because that's very different from whiskey. It's much lighter and uh, much sort of crisper, mm-hmm. even though it's a lightly sweetened, but it was very lightly sweetened. Uh, so Old Tom Gin and vermouth, we're you know, still talking sweet vermouth usually. Okay, that's that's a pretty nice light mixture. Now, now people call it the Martinez. But at the time, there were... Uh, the name was really in flux because where where are you going to find it written? Nobody was writing it down. It was what you heard over a bar. It was the Martine, M-A-R-T-I-N-E. It was the Martini, M-A-R-T-I-N-I, or M-A-R-T-I-G-N-Y, or in the South, the Martina, <laughs> M-A-R-T-E-N-A, because, you know, that's Southern pronunciation of anything with an I in the end. <laughs> uh, and, and it just, you could see, like, people are kind of, trying to figure out what to call it and uh, what it's named after. I suspect it was named after the vermouth because Martini and Sola at the time, not Martini and Rossi yet. But that was the big exporter and that was and it had its name very big on the bottle. So you know Martini and Sola vino vermouth. Mm-hmm. So uh, so people were, you know, that's where you get the wine, the idea of, oh, we're mixing it with wine. And would that also, like, if you're asking for a martini cocktail, you know, in yeah, that yeah. case, that differentiates it from a whiskey cocktail exactly. or a gin exactly. cocktail. Exactly. It's the cocktail with the, that martini stuff in it. Ah. You know, so... Uh, that stands to reason. That, yeah. that seems pretty compelling of an argument. I mean, stands to reason is always a problem with drinks because <laughs> a lot, a lot of, a lot of the, the most logical stories are completely false. <laughs> So I don't know. Uh, but but nonetheless, you know, you can kind of see how this is developing. And then by 1890, you know, the two are really differentiated and you start seeing the dry martini coming in We're using dry vermouth and saying, everybody, dry martini, dry vermouth, you know, and that uh, that starts around 1890 and picks up steam in the middle of that decade. And then uh, by 1900, it's kind of driving out the sweet vermouth one. Interesting. And um, we, we, we don't tend to have as much of a horse in the race here over over here in the States, at least. But, um, you know, you spoke about Dutch gin earlier mm-hmm. there. I know that Anastasia Miller and Jared Brown have done a lot to kind of try and figure out who came first. Was it the British or the Dutch? Because the, 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 the narrative tends to be that, that Geneva kind of predates uh, British gin. But I think those folks have uh, maybe done some work. I know they're writing about it. I don't know whether that work has been released yet. Yeah, I, I, I believe it does predate. Uh, it was, you got to look at prices, <laughs> you know, you, you look at price lists and the Geneva was always in England was very expensive because it was a luxury good and it was a well-known imported luxury good. Uh, old Geneva sold for old cognac prices uh, or maybe just a little bit under. 
Those were the two uh, most expensive spirits sold in England from like this mid 1700s up until the 1830s. So gin becomes like a a cheap knockoff. It was the local knockoff exactly. And it was originally just that. It was bad. But uh the Napoleonic Wars mean naval blockade, no more Geneva. So uh there was a room in the market suddenly for a more expensive, better made English gin. And that's when you really start to see hmm. English gin developing a th- in, into something of its own. And why juniper? Why, why, I've never thought about this before, but what's what's the symbolic importance? Well, of- it was medicinal, supposedly good for your kidneys. And uh, and, and also, uh, the, the real reason, you go back to like the 1400s, 1500s, when distillation is sweeping across Europe. It had been bubbling under for a long time, and how long is debatable. But uh, but that's it's it's not debatable that that's when it breaks out, and uh, the first thing people are making are these really complicated distillates with everything expensive in there, every medicinal thing that's that's costly because uh, you know you want to make the most potent medicine you can. Well, that's great for the rich people, and then everybody else is saying, "What the fuck?" Well, you know, what about <laughs> us? We're cold too. You know, we're we're tired. We we want shots of something, and uh, it doesn't take long before. You see these sort of belts in England. The northernmost, the cheap flavoring they use is caraway seeds or cumin seeds, and that gives us the whole aquavit cumul belt, like way up in the north. Hmm. Then beneath that, like kind of running down the length of the Rhine, is the juniper berry belt, and that's where that's really popular. And then there's the anise belt all around the Mediterranean. Where, and those are all three of those things are common and cheap and pungent. And so they will flavor the spirit and they will mask the taste of the stank distillation they were doing. And I'm pretty sure it was stank because nobody ever talks about cutting out the heads. Yeah. So <laughs> I was going to say, no, no heads, heart and tails at this point. Yeah, not so much. Uh, and there's all, they're always mixing the tails back in to cut it to proof, which works with tequila, with some tequilas. Mezcal as well. It's, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, I mean, it's done and it used to be done with American whiskey, it used to be done with bourbon. But uh, but it still makes for a heavily flavored spirit, <laughs> and you might want, um, especially grain spirits are are not, um, you know, they're 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 pretty doggy tasting. So then you bring in these, yeah, the, these really kind of heavy components yeah, to, yeah, to, exactly. to flavor those. Interesting, and that's where where the juniper comes in. But the Dutch didn't use very much; they they did a better distillation. The English never used the care in their distillation that the Dutch did and for tax reasons that are way too long to go into. And, and the Dutch would have been, uh, you know, big, big banking uh, economy at this oh, time. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you know, they had capital. But the, I mean, it's it's this is a total tangent. But the way the Geneva industry worked is there were a million small distilleries, all of them pretty much the same, like two houses wide, three stories high. And those uh, all their stuff, all their stuff got bundled. You know, basically. <laughs> so the Dutch, very democratic in a way. They don't like anybody getting too powerful. So everybody got a piece of the distillation mm-hmm. and got got a piece of the profit for this. And then it all went to like these consolidators who blended it and bottled it. Very, yeah, that really is very democratic. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, this is, again, this is an even bigger tangent, but this is a nation with so much money at a certain point in time that we get the tulip craze. Or, uh, oh, yeah, that. oh, yeah. <laughs> And this is that time, you know. Right. And, and people are spending yeah, yeah. eye-watering yeah, yeah. amounts on, on plants. Yeah. 
but you know, but at this at the same time, they're they're exporting their their distillates all over the world and making a ton of money on that too. Mm-hmm. They're trading in Africa with it. You know, we don't need to talk about that. It's it's a nasty tale. Mm-hmm. They're trading in uh, Indonesia, the Caribbean. To this day, if you travel to most Caribbean islands, you'll be surprised to find Geneva sold in all the liquor stores. Wow. Which, you know, we can't say that up here, but down Actually in the, not. like in Martinique, hell yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> because that was, it was a common part of the economy down there. Wow. And then definitely starting with Dutch gin or Geneva here mm-hmm. in the US. And then, you know, I'm assuming therefore British, the quality of London dry gin will improve over time. Yeah. And it takes a while for English gin to catch on. It's It really is not till the 1880s. And it was a couple of drinks. It was the martini. It was the gin fizz. Little later, the Gin Ricky, those were the ones that really broke it, and 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 the Tom Collins, mm-hmm. uh, those those drinks, like made everybody pay attention to English gin. Before that, Dutch gin, uh, if you look at the import records, English gin was a small market. Uh, very very little came in. I mean, some came in, but very little. Mm-hmm. And uh, but Dutch gin came in in huge amounts. And, That's fascinating. Yeah, and and really really. Big barrels of it and many of them. <laughs> and you mentioned that maybe around the, the 1890s, that kind of bartending kit that you would have, the utensils they would be using, um, it, it's very similar to what we use today. At around that time, or would it have been before when we start looking at ratios? Because that's a very important part of the martini cocktail yeah. that I want to get into afterwards. Yeah, they originally there were, you see, three ratios in use, but the by far the most common one is equal parts. Uh, gin and vermouth because it was a split-based cocktail. You know, it's like, oh, just take a cocktail. It's easy to tell people how to make it. Just, you know, use half vermouth and half whiskey or gin, whatever. Uh, Or brandy. They also, you know, the brandy one came out very early on, the Metropole, uh, which is a great drink. Um, And then uh, some people, you see two-to-one come in in the 1890s, but you also see one-to-two. Uh, in in the late 1880s, occasionally people wanted you know more vermouth and less uh, less booze, but usually it's the other way around. Mm-hmm. And those those ratios last for a long time. I mean, they're still being printed as standard in in the 1940s, uh, wow. which is much later than we think. Yeah, already people were were modifying them, but you don't see the real the you know you don't see it to start really drying out. Until like the 1910s when two to one becomes standard and uh, three to one or five to one you occasionally see. You don't see much more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the same during Prohibition. Uh, World War II kind of broke everything. And uh, after World War II is when you see like the 15 to ones. And the <laughs> or and then in the 1950s it goes nuts. And then it's the, you know, I put a cap of vermouth of half full of vermouth on the radiator last night and uh and that was enough to you know to make my 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 glass of uh iced gin or at that point vodka into a martini which is you know stupid how much do you buy into some of these historical tales and some of these quotes you know that the, the churchills out there or the Someone said, I can't remember where I was reading that, that maybe that famous Churchill quote is actually misattributed and it's, it was a different author who had that or I don't know. I, I, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A lot of that stuff, I mean, trying to get to the uh, the bottom of the 15 to 1 Montgomery, you know, 
Ernest Hemingway puts it in a book. I don't see any trace of it before then. Mm-hmm. So, and, and nobody really talks about that, but it's possible. Uh, I just haven't found it. But uh, how, how do you even make a 15 to 1 martini, like quantity uh, uh, wise? One teaspoon vermouth and uh, scan three ounces. Uh, scan three ounces, yeah, something like that. So, or a quarter ounce. I, uh, I I used to have that at my fingertips, but I never make those anymore. <laughs> <laughs> I never really, I never really cared for those very much. But uh, mm-hmm. but you know, there the, you start to see like all kinds of weird stuff going on with the martini mm-hmm. by the nineteen uh, fifties when people are are doing. Uh, I, I mean, there's the martini scale where which is a scientific scale where you can weigh your proportions. <laughs> Why well, is a piece of yeah, equipment? Yeah, that... yeah, yeah, yeah. Then there's like the Venturi jigger to give you the perfect like five to one, which is like the longest jigger. It's about like eight inches long and uh, it's got two very narrow cones, one short one and one very, very long one. You know, there's all kinds of stuff like that. I mean, American industry was good at, th- at this stuff. You had all these metalworking companies who had been making complicated aluminum castings for five years uh, in huge volume and uh, with plenty of draftsmen around. So, uh, And a lot of people who needed a stiff drink. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, a lot of industrial metal workers who suddenly were out of a job. <laughs> what about, you know, we talked about the martini in, in, in Manhattan with a shared origin why do you think it is that the martini takes on this this absolute journey of personalization and customization mm-hmm. and the Manhattan basically retains this two-to-one formula over time? Well, for me, I think it's if you try to monkey with the Manhattan, things go really wrong. For years, you know, in the... 70s, 80s, 90s, if you're, although I probably, I don't think I probably ordered a Manhattan in the 70s, but I certainly did in the 80s and 90s. I certainly ordered martinis in the 70s. You know, legal drinking age was 18 in New York and I was 18 at the end of the 70s. But uh, the Manhattan, like if you try to make it like uh, a martini with just a dash of vermouth, which every bartender did in the uh, 80s and 90s, and it was just an absolutely horrible thing that you result because you end up with spoiled whiskey. Uh, gin is much lighter. You know, there's, there's, it tastes pungent, but it's a light spirit. It blends. And so you can get away with just a little bit of vermouth. Uh, but with with whiskey, you just, you lose the vermouth and you lose the edge on the whiskey. And that's why bartenders would put a spoonful of the cherry yuck in there from the uh, cherry jar because they could taste it and they say, this isn't good. We got to make it richer. And rather than put in more vermouth, which is toxic waste, everybody knows, you're, you know, you're only allowed to put like the tiniest eyedropper full or else the thing will fucking explode in your glass. And, you know, and then, and then where are you? So uh, you've got to uh, put in a spoonful of the cherry yuck instead and hopefully that'll smooth everything out. Those are, those are not good Manhattans. But uh, so, you know, the, the Manhattan kind of resisted it. But the martini's very, very uh, malleable. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do all kinds of different proportions and and come out with something drinkable. Although there are limits there too, as 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 one discovers. And why do you think you know it's obviously a phenomenally tasting cocktail, and it can take on all these yeah. different guises, right? But simply tasting good does not make a drink famous. We know that. I'm sure you know countless cocktails that most oh, people yeah. have never heard oh, yeah. of that are oh, great. Yeah. Where does the iconography come from? Why does it become such a, you know, it, it is the cocktail emoji, right? I often right, say this, right? right? Like, 
I mean, we need to get uh, Lowell Edmonds on, on for this one, who wrote the book on martini iconography and the cultural history of the martini. And he's a very smart man, classics professor at Rutgers, now now retired. But uh, he, he goes into this in great detail. You know, it, it in part uh, because it is a potent drink, and kind of a peerlessly potent drink, because it, it it's light. You know, you make one with enough vermouth and you balance it properly, and it's a light, pleasant drink. And then, bam, you know, <laughs> you, if you're drinking whiskey, you know you're drinking whiskey. With this, it's like, hmm, that's just kind of crisp and clean and refreshing. And, oh, my God, I'm drunk. <laughs> you know, <laughs> after, after you line them up. It's like rocket fuel. I don't know. For me, it's also like there, there are certain things – that you can drink or eat that that have a, another intangible effect, oh, yeah. right? Oh, yeah. Like I say it with champagne. I think absinthe too. That might be a placebo, oh, yeah. oh, but yeah. when I drink absinthe, kind of you know, and mar- martinis. I mean, and the martinis another one. When I was uh, in my youth, I was playing in punk bands, and I always would drink two martinis before I went on stage, or sometimes three martinis if they were little, <laughs> which I could not do now. I couldn't even figure out how to plug the bass in if I had to do it now. But at the time, you know, I was of robust constitution. And uh, I always used to say that back then, the shortest distance between two points is a martini. So uh, <laughs> and that's, that was like really, that, that, was, that was it. You know, mm-hmm. it was like uh, martinis, you could drink them in old man bars because uh, even the, the crustiest bartender knew how to make a martini. And took a little pride in that. Mm-hmm. Other drinks were just like, get out of here. But, you know, a martini, sure. And the the glass as well. I, I, I feel like that has cool. to, yeah. that yeah, has to cool. play a massive yeah. part. It's special equipment. Every, everybody likes special equipment. And it's not too silly, although it will spill and tip. Especially if you get the smaller ones, like in, in old man bars. If you went to like fancier bars, you'd get these double martini glasses, which are just too big. Yeah. And that's that's very hard to survive a, ra- a couple of rounds of those. <laughs> <laughs> Probably sometimes as well, just pulled fresh out the dishwasher, yeah, like warm, oh, warm. I know, and it's like it's like a bird bath, you know. And, <laughs> yeah. and by the end of it, you feel like a, a flock of crows has been uh, washing their wings in there, and it's just <laughs> this is disgusting. Why am I drinking this? It's like warm. when you have one at the at the airport as well, and the bartender you ask for a twist, and he takes a lemon wedge yeah. and he just pulls out the flesh of it. And yeah, just drops it in. I know. I mean, you were lucky, you know, back then. the The, the skill of bartending has improved greatly, even in in the silliest, uh, most pretentious bars. You can get a better martini now than you could have uh, twenty, thirty years ago. That's for sure. And what about those garnishes? When when do those start to come into play in the in the twist and olive specifically? The twist is real early because people were already doing that in the whiskey cocktail. So the olive comes in. Well, first the cherry, and that goes. You know, especially in a sweet vermouth martini, there's no problem having a cherry in that. That's that's fine, uh, and that uh, comes in around 1890. Uh, you start to see those the maraschino cherries, little real ones. And soon those are being completely faked in America. You get blobs of colored celluloid. Uh, you know, there's all kinds of stuff. Oh, my God. Yeah, or cellulose. You know, it's like it was completely artificial. There was things were just as bad then as they are now with artificial <laughs> ingredients. So that comes first. And then with the dry martini, people are like, this doesn't really work. New thing on the market was the pitted jarred olive and especially the pimola, which is an olive with a little bit of red pimento in it. 
And that comes in in the 1890s also from Spain. And people are like, you put these in the dry drinks. At first, they try putting them in the sweet drinks, too. And that doesn't really work so well. <laughs> but, you know, people, it takes, it takes a while to work this stuff out. And mm -hmm. uh, so it, it gets worked out. And uh, so both of those are there by 1900. The Onion, early 1900s. At first, the Gibson didn't have an Onion because all the Gibson was was a, a 60-40 Plymouth dry martini with um, no orange bitters. Oh, interesting. But once the martini itself lost the orange bitters, there was no distinction. And so and then the, the, the Gibson was a West Coast drink, and uh, the martini with cocktail onion garnish was a West Coast thing. So those two got run together. Hmm. And, uh, and, and that happens by 1920. And so we're, you know, those orange bitters or bitters in general, those are yeah. always a feature because, again, harking back to that kind of like 1806 precedent that we have there. Yeah, that, cocktail has to have bitters. Yeah. And but, you know, the bitters with the dry martini, uh, the bitters started to seem intrusive until, hey, wait a minute. There's this new kind of bitters that's being imported from Holland, orange bitters. Let's try that. That's not intrusive. That's actually great. You know, in a, in a dry martini, a couple dashes of orange bitters really work nicely. And, uh, you know, they add a little depth of flavor and mm -hmm. a little little more citrus to it. It's lovely. So. They can they can also hijack the drink. We, we've spoken about this a lot before in this show, but our, uh, uh, mm -hmm. I find that the range of different orange bitters that are out there, like some can really oh, yeah. kind of oh, derail yeah. my martini. Yeah, I mean, particularly the Angostura orange bitters are very pungent. Yeah. I wouldn't use them in a martini. <laughs> uh, I, I still use the the... The old Fegans combination of Fees and Reagans together, they're they're just perfect. They're exactly what you want in an orange bitters. Yeah, good orange flavor, a hint of bitterness, and uh, and some botanical stuff. But uh, there are others that are good too. I start doing the same thing, and and like many people as well, just topping up my old bottle of Regans that still has gases, you know, yeah, face yeah, there yeah, on same. the front, you know. Yeah, yeah. Don't want to let go of that one. No. All right, this is the ultimate cocktail when it comes to personalization. So I want to get your take here on your own ratios. And also fittingly, this was the final column I believe you wrote for the Daily Beast before moving to working with Flaviar and exactly. embarking on what you're doing now. Um, it's a wonderful column. There's there's a little bit more math in there than I was expecting. <laughs> than I was expecting too, but I couldn't figure out how to get it. You know? I had to resort to math, which I'm terrible at. But talk uh, us through, yeah, talk us through your thoughts okay. on ratios and, 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 yeah, your your personal take on this. I've been, you know, researching the history of the martini for a long time, which means I keep files. And I, eventually I did a ratios file. I went through all the bartending books that I had, uh, or the main ones anyway, and wrote down the ratios. And you could see how they were changing. And then, uh, you know, I went and looked at gin proofs over time. And, and finally I, I said I need to kind of see how this works out in real life. And it turns out all the best tasting martinis, because I went and made all the different ratios, et cetera, they fall inside within a certain range of ABV between 28% and 32%. And I had to figure out how to calculate that. But fortunately, it's easy. Is you multiply the number of units of uh, vermouth times the percentage of alcohol plus the number of units of gin times the uh, the percentage of alcohol, 
and uh, you multiply that by 1.25, which is the the extra 0.25 is for dilution. It could go either way. It could be a little more, a little less, but that was a good rule of thumb anyway. And that, that'll give you roughly the proof of your, you know, uh, of, of of your martini and, you know, the number of units of gin and vermouth or that's your ratio there. Mm-hmm. Uh, the number of units of each can vary quite a bit. And so it, it turns out that uh, below 28%, occasionally you can get a good one, but it's rare. And uh, you need a very pungent gin for that. Like Tanqueray, you can make a one-to-one with Tanqueray and it'll fall outside of that range, but it'll still be a good a good martini. But uh, you try it with other gins and it just tastes watery and kind of swampy mm-hmm. and it doesn't really – it's not satisfying. And, you know, obviously this this is, is where we're getting subjective. Uh, that line can kind of move for people. And then over a certain percentage – I mean, I've drunk many a strong martini for years. I used to drink martinis with no vermouth at all. Uh, I can't do that anymore, fortunately. But also, um, you have to accept a certain rocket fuel, you know, sort of uh, flavor to it. And over 32%, it's mostly rocket fuel. And you, you really don't get the that, <laughs> that pleasant blend. Yeah. But uh, within that, within those limits, it'll almost always be good, mm-hmm. you know? Uh, it might be a little stronger. It might be a little uh, softer, but but those those are pretty good limits. And you can you can make a chart easily enough and say this proof gin. Uh, these are the ratios that work best. Mm-hmm. You know, with each proof. So with the with something like that's forty one percent, you're going to want two to one at minimum, and three to one or four to one will will work great. Uh, with Really stronger gins, it, it's different. So my f- sort of favorite hack with all this, I really like a 50-50 martini because it's soft and pleasant to drink and uh, and nice and botanical, but it is a little watery for me. So what I end up doing is my cheating hack for this is to use a so-called Navy Strength gin, which is uh, 117 proof and uh, considerably stronger than uh, any of the others. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll do not quite 50-50. I'll do uh, five to seven. So uh, that that works out to uh, one and a quarter ounces of vermouth instead of one and a half out of a three-ounce drink and one and three-quarters ounces of gin, so a little more. But that'll give you, like, a lot of alcohol in there, so the percentage will be high, but you still got a lot of vermouth and a lot of vermouth botanicals in there. And uh, so it's strong, but at the same time, you know, and and it's bracing, but at the same time, you got all that all that kind of nice flavor and softness. So I got to start doing that because it's worth a try. (laughs) You know, at least try it. You know, it's it's, I don't I don't always make those, but uh, that's. That's a, that's a very good martini. Maybe the second one of the night, because otherwise w- the position I find myself in is even though I'm buying 375 ml bottles of vermouth, yeah, 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 yeah. I make my martini so dry that I, I can't get to the end of it before it's time to turn. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, maybe, yeah, the yeah, second yeah, yeah. one of the night has to be that. And I also have these, you know, 
I have Fords. I have um, from New York Distilling Company as well. The name escapes me, but I have these Navy Strength gins that yeah, I yeah. just never really know exactly what to do. Well, this with is them. a great thing to do with them because it 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 leverages their strength, you know, and uh, and and you get a really good concentrated hit of gin in this, mm-hmm. and also a really good good strong hit of hit of vermouth. It's sort of like a heightened martini. You know, it it does what a martini's supposed to do, but it, it kind of bridges the two uh, extremes. Uh, so it, it, it's 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 a fun little mm-hmm. uh, cheat. <laughs> and 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 let's talk about gin as well, because I would imagine you know this you know you, you you've been drinking martinis. I believe you wrote in that column for forty years, writing about them for close to thirty mm-hmm. now. Also. You're aware of gin, but you've you've been aware of it more in a professional point of view, you know, for for a long time oh, yeah. now. What about that evolution? And also, like, where does all of this this experimentation, these new Western, you know, phenomenal products, but where do they fit into this it's, conversation? It's very difficult now. It used to be very difficult because you could you would often have trouble finding a decent bottle of gin. Now you go to the store and there's just shelf after shelf after shelf of gin. What the hell do I do here? You know, it's and uh, some of them are really classic and just making a good classic gin and, you know, in their local market and doing it well and uh, exporting it a little from the local market. And then others are just these wild personal fantasies <laughs> of what gin could be. But, uh, you know, maybe by people who haven't drunk a lot of martinis and don't really care about martinis very much, they are distillers wanting to show their art, you know. And uh, I want a martini gin. Yeah. You know, a sour gin, you know, one for, for citrus drinks could be a little different. There's a little more latitude there. But for a martini, if it's got too many botanicals in it, or if it's too jacked up botanically, you end up with a taste like, you know, grandma's potpourri. Yeah. And it's just like, this isn't crisp. This isn't cleansing. <laughs> you know, this isn't calming. I mean, we live in a very stressful world. And, you know, I kind of think of the martini as like a temple massage, like internal, you know, it's just rubbing your temples, rubbing your temples. <laughs> this will get better. This will get better. <laughs> you know, because, uh, boy, a lot of these gins don't really, that's not part of their vocabulary, mm-hmm. you know. They're more like grab you by the lapels and <laughs> slap you back and forth and say, look at me. And I don't really want to do that. It's the only category or the only style of spirit that I actually don't want to taste the base spirit. Because, again, a part of that conversation. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've tried some of these newer craft, smaller producers mm-hmm. where intentionally you can taste the base distillate. And especially for a martini, I just don't want that. No. You don't make martinis with Geneva, for instance. No. You know, <laughs> exactly. Not dry martinis. You, it makes a great uh, sweet vermouth martini, and you know Geneva. You the whole point of Geneva is you almost only taste the base spirit. I mean, good luck finding juniper in in a, in a lot <laughs> in a lot of them. There, there, there's testimony from the the early 20th century when the British were trying to get to the bottom of booze and what everything was. They got the uh, the top Dutch distillers came over and they said, yeah, you know, for many markets, we don't put any juniper at all. <laughs> wow. Yeah. I mean, they, they, they really don't use a lot. <laughs> uh, it's mostly just malt spirit, you know, and mm-hmm. that's that can be great. Uh, it's not great for a dry martini and uh, you, you want something a little crisper. And I mean, mm-hmm. that's all base spirit. Mm-hmm. And when it comes to your own preference for this cocktail, do, do you have one or... Does that 
kind of formula that you've laid out there really does allow you to say today I'm having a Plymouth martini, tomorrow I'm having a uh, beefy or whatever, or like, does it? Well, it, it allows me to, to uh, it reminds me, let's say, it, you know, you can always mix what you want, mm -hmm. but it reminds me of what works best with the proofs of the various gins, you know, and that's something, you know, it's like, okay, what gin do I, what's the best gin I have here? Uh, Plymouth, let me, okay, I know what I'm going to have to do with it to make a good drink, you know, and, uh, oh, I've got a very, I've got like a really strong old Raj, mm -hmm. you know, okay, I'm going to have to uh, maybe step up the vermouth here. Yep. And uh, because otherwise it's going to, you know, it's not going to show to its best. So there, it's just another tool, you know, mm -hmm. but it's a useful tool. Is it reminds you proof isn't the only thing, you know, it's not the only factor. Like I said, there's fudging on either end of the proof scale and individual gins can kind of break the template there or at least bend it. But it's it's a useful tool, you know. Mm -hmm. One thing I love about gin as a category as well is that in other areas Okay, we're changing a little bit, I would say, in American whiskey now. But in other fields, you you tend to see basically things coming in at 80 proof, 86 proof, and that's kind of it. There's standards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Each gin is is very unique. I want to say, am I am I wrong in thinking that Plymouth's kind of on the lower scale for gin? It is. Like 42.3 or something? Yeah, for 41 point something. 41, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is surprisingly yeah. low for gin. Yeah, I mean, originally, English gin, like London dry gin... Or or yeah, bottled English gin, let's say, came really in only two proofs. It was forty seven percent or forty four percent, and those are based on British, like complicated British excise rules and different ways of measuring proof uh, and all kinds of stuff. But those are the two most traditional proofs. Hmm. There was also uh, you could get it at full proof uh, at uh, fifty. Seven percent, uh, but that was never meant to be drunk straight. That was meant to be made for mixing, or for reducing and and, mm. and uh, making your own old Tom gin. So you were supposed to uh. add water and sugar and huh. sweeten it to your own taste. Interesting. Yeah, nobody nobody drank it straight originally. <laughs> uh, an unsweetened gin was like no. What, mm -hmm. what, who wants that? You know. And then infamously, in in recent years, we see. Beefy are taking it, you know, coming down a couple of yeah. Beefy either went from the high forty seven forty seven to the low one, <laughs> you know, and, and those were price points originally in in England uh, in in the uh, you know turn of the last century. It was how much the uh, wholesaler had diluted mm -hmm. it. <laughs> Am I wrong in thinking though that I, I think someone told me this that Beefy are actually in the UK though was always or was sold at 44 yeah it was anyway. always it was lower anyway yeah it was lower anyway yeah, was Americans the wanted wanted the higher proof huh. uh you know Americans drank drier martinis and wanted them to be stronger interesting uh, and uh yeah very few are still holding the line but that, that's an opportunity for some of the newer gins to to come in and say look we're making it strictly old school mm -hmm. uh you know classic London dry gin at the at the original full proof. And then that's a nice little seg, I guess, for us to head into dry vermouth here too, because I believe we've also seen or no longer available uh, is, a, is a certain type of Noali Prat over here in the US, which I think has been lamented by many. Yeah, well, it came back during the cocktail revolution and everybody said, we, and then nobody drank it. And then it <laughs> went away again. We went back to the original American extra dry, which I think was introduced in the early 60s. And uh, I 
personally, I like the extra dry better. <laughs> <laughs> it's what I grew up with, I guess. I don't know. The, the other one is good for, for more complicated drinks, but in a martini, I can see why you want the mm-hmm. extra dry. The extra dry is very crisp. And unless you're doing that 50-50, you know, or, or, or five yeah, yeah. to seven, really like vermouth has to play a kind of obedient role as supporting actor, right? Yeah, you don't want a crazy vermouth either, yeah. you know. <laughs> that's 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 the other thing is you get crazy gins, you get crazy vermouths. And those are all fun and games, but they don't make for, for that, you know, temple massage martini <laughs> where, where you're just like, ah, thank God. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Uh, do you have a preference when it comes to some of those? You know, people do describe, you know, people describe Martini and Rossi as like a workhorse. Uh, we have the Dolans of the yeah, world. Yeah, I, I, I like for dry vermouth, uh, I want a French one. Mm-hmm. I I don't, I've got many friends in the Italian vermouth industry, and I hate to say this, but I don't care for the Italian dry vermouths. <laughs> uh, I, I like their sweet vermouths very much, or mm-hmm. they're also their Biancos, very nice. But their dry vermouths, I, I, I find to be, um, you know, not to my taste. But uh, so I usually use for a, for a dry martini, I'll go with Dolan or Noi Pratt. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, but, you know, I don't try to go for the rarest vermouths. I spent 17 years writing for Esquire, and uh, it was a national magazine, and you had to recommend stuff that people could actually find. So I learned to find stuff that works, that might not be flashy, but it works, yeah. you know, and you can get it. I learned to be okay with that. One thing I have been excited to to see and uh, have not yet had the fortune of trying most of them actually is that, um, you know, we saw in the gin space, these um, bartender inspired gins mm-hmm. for cocktails like the martini, you know, your Fords. Uh, okay. Aviation took a little bit of a different route, yeah. but they're the bartender. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we have these bartender inspired vermouths, which to me, make a ton of sense as well because, like, these are the, the folks that have been working most right, with them. Right, Um So I'm excited to try some of those. Have you had any of those? Not a lot, no. Not a lot. I've uh, In cocktails at bars, but uh, not at home. Mm-hmm. Again, it does does feel like maybe the next frontier, but again, yeah. The otherwise, I think some of these American vermouths, again, they they tried to stand out, and again, that, yeah. that's just something I'm not looking for. Vermouth with soda, delicious. Yeah, I love it. Exactly. Floral hit me with everything, but you know, you can make you can make an americano with it or something like that, or uh, yeah, you can experiment with 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 various things mm-hmm. like that. But uh, martinis, I don't really want very much experimentation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really conservative about it. Uh, Unfortunately or fortunately, as the case may be. And then garnish. Are you twist, olive, or do you believe that combining the two is definitely not a crime? I don't think it's a crime. I, I always My rule has always been drink what you like. Uh, I don't get offended if people, you know, do any crazy ass thing. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, am I going to do it? No. <laughs> I, I prefer, I just like a twist. Just a twist? A lemon twist. Very good. I mean, occasionally for the sake of variety, I will put a spoonful of some of some liqueur or something like that in my martini, something herbal. A little eau de vie, maybe? Yeah, or some strega. Mm, Ooh. Very good. Yeah. Or something like that. You know, that's fun. Uh, Italicus, very nice. Just a little bit. But uh, in general, I, I stay away from that. Mm-hmm. Again, it's, it's finding that fine balance between... I kind of always want to be drinking martinis, right? But I, yeah, want, I want a slight riff on it, but that maintains yeah. the soul of the drink. Well, and how my do favorite I do one, that? my favorite one, comes from uh, Giuseppe Cipriani, the founder of Harry's Bar in, in Venice, and the Cipriani, you know, family dynasty. And uh, 
they kind of mess it up the way they do it at uh, Cipriani now because they make a direct martini, as they call it, where you you don't uh, stir it and dilute it. You just put the uh, vermouth and the gin in the freezer and then and then you pull it out and pour it and uh, uh, they pre-mix it and, and just put and give it to you. Hmm. Uh, it's so it's uh, not taking the jukes to the next level. Yeah, essentially? well, it, it, it is. Or, it, they're very similar. Mm-hmm. Uh, his original version of that was a little more complicated because a, he didn't use vermouth. He used Tokai Friulano wine, which is a nice aromatic kind of minerally white wine proportion of four to one, stirred it with ice, strained it, and then put it in the freezer. <laughs> and uh, and then you can take it out and pour it. Uh, so it's it's a batched martini, mm-hmm. but it has been uh, already um, diluted and uh, and and melded and softened. Mm-hmm. And that's that's a really lovely drink. But you but the wine is hard to find here. <laughs> where 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 he was in Venice, it was cheap and easily available. Here it's you know twenty five dollars a bottle. <laughs> it's a rare varietal. Uh, but it works. It works very well. You could try it with other other white wines too. You know, something crisp and, and nice. You could try it with a Sancerre or something like that. What about a? Um, we're, we're on kind of like hacks or you know like yeah, yeah, minor yeah. riffs here. How do you feel about a peated Scotch rinse on your glass? Oh, that's kind of fun. Yeah, that's, that's, a fun that's one. the uh, what is it? The Berlin Station Chief or something? <laughs> that's what it was called. Uh, uh, yeah, that that goes back to the seventies and is, mm-hmm. is that's not bad. You know. Also, the fireman's uh, martini, I've heard it called. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, that that's kind of fun. I like I that. I mean, I wouldn't do it regularly. No. But every once in a while, you know, those things are nice for, for the jaded palate. Exactly. Just, yeah. It's like the, the Strega or whatever, you know, it's like doing that. Exactly. And then you, and then you bring you back to... Um, you know your own martini, which is which is wonderful and uh, serendipitous for us here because we have arrived at the moment where I would like to get your. Uh, I would like Dave Wondrich's. It might not be your all-time martini okay. recipe. It's the martini recipe you're enjoying at the moment. Because if you're anything like me, I'm sure that changes. Oh, it changes all the time. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm drinking a lot of three-to-one martinis, uh, usually with Tanqueray, three parts Tanqueray, one part Noy Pratt, uh, two dashes orange bitters. Stirred very well with ice, strained lemon twist. There's nothing exciting about that other than drinking it. <laughs> <laughs> twist makes it into the glass. Uh, I always drop it in. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm not. You know, I, I, I don't mind it in mm-hmm. there. I like to see that. Gives it a little bit. evolution of the yeah, cocktail as well. Yeah, a little bit, and it just reminds me that there's lemon in there. <laughs> and preferred glassware for this drink? Uh, I keep in my freezer. I have this set of weird 1950s flat bottomed. Uh, stemmed martini glasses that are kind of, uh, uh, but they have my initial on them. They're, they were a thrift store find. Are they the ideal martini glass? No, they're not. Uh, but uh, they're really durable and they can live in the freezer without a problem, mm-hmm. without getting bits of broken glass all over the freezer. So, uh, so that's probably hazards. what I use the most. <laughs> but, you know, I would prefer like a Nick and Nora type glass. Mm-hmm. The only issue I do find with a Nick and Nora for myself is the uh, the size there. I don't love a sidecar, and I want to get your opinion on that one as well. Yeah, it never tastes as good as the first part. You know, I I would rather have, like, two cheaper martinis. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) A little happy hour special somewhere, you know. exactly, exactly. But usually, you know, uh, I'm at the age where I really shouldn't drink two martinis in a row. 
Uh, I should just get a nice crisp uh, lager yeah, or something nice, for the yeah. second round. And I then, like that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, just because otherwise uh, you get into trouble. Mm-hmm. So during the pandemic, I want to say something here, which is that we all found weird and interesting ways of kind of coping, keeping ourselves, mm-hmm. um, you know, keeping ourselves busy and occupied. And myself, like countless others out there, I imagine, came to really enjoy around 5 p.m. on Twitter or the Mm. app formerly known as Twitter. Yeah. And you start doing these kind of walkthroughs of of cocktails, but not video, right? It was it was a thread with some photos. Talk us through what 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 made you first do that? And then, yeah, that was a real fun thing. That was something that I can look back at and say with some kind of nostalgia, you know, for that period of time. That was that was it was it ended up being something quite crazy because I did it for 75 days straight in a row. Uh, every five o'clock, roughly, sometimes I missed it. Uh, I would, uh, yeah, we called it lo-fi lush hour. And uh, start by washing your hands. Yeah, wash your hands uh, <laughs> first. And this was a reaction to them shutting the bars in New York. And it's like, okay, people are going to need a drink. So I started with one. I said, let me just show people, walk through pe- people through, you know, a simple cocktail. And uh, I, used iPhone pictures, and I typed it up in real time. So there's a million typos, like outrageous typos, <laughs> like throughout. And, uh, and you know, sometimes I, I, I would get the threading wrong. It was, it was, it was, that's why it was lo-fi, the whole thing. And, and the pictures were taken in my kitchen with whatever light I had. I didn't have a photo studio. I didn't want it to, I didn't want it to be anything like that because it, it was like, this is where we all are, you know? Yep. We're all just at home and doing stuff. So let's do it. And, you know, I've got punk rock roots. So I said, let me do this as punk rock as possible. <laughs> and uh, part of that was uh, substitutions. I wouldn't show you, you need this gin. It's like, here's all the gins I got, uh, you know, or here's all, here's a, here's a good selection of whiskeys for this one. And here's why you can use this one or this one. And if you ain't got this, you can, you might want to use this or, or just try something else. And then I tried to take funny, uh, pictures to go along with it with crazy perspectives and uh, show off various weird pieces of bar gear and uh, for everything from a red solo cup as as shaker to an <laughs> impossibly rare 1850s uh, cocktail shaker, silver plated and flimsy. You know, it's, it's like the whole spectrum. Mm-hmm. And because every day I had to come up with something new. Well, that was it. It, it really did kind of give us something that, that this was yeah, a new day, something different, because we were living in this Groundhog Day well, existence. The funny thing about it is, it ended up being kind of like a bar mm-hmm. because I had regulars, and uh, we would I'd post this stuff, and then there'd be chit chat afterwards, and <laughs> people would post their drinks, their photos, and and we'd all like say cheers, and and you know, and it was the same people kept coming back and would check in, and it was like, oh, there's so and so, there's so and so, there's mm-hmm. here's my regulars. Every once in a while, we'd get an illustrious celebrity client. Or other times, you know, there'd be I wouldn't recognize anybody, and uh, but it but it was it was it was something to do. But eventually, it got to be too much, and right then the George Floyd protest started, and I'm like, I'm not going to do that during this. Yeah, you know, this is all right. I, this has run its course, and I brought it back for like election week and uh, you know a couple other things, inauguration day, mm-hmm. but uh, but that was about it. I think that was also the same with the. 
6 p.m. or 7 p.m. appreciation for the for the workers yeah, as well. Exactly. I think you know that was pretty much the same timing for that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, like definitely, it makes sense that we would stop that because there were even more important issues at hand and things to be talking about. Yeah, there is a slight sadness to the fact that. We didn't have a final day of that kind of the no, clapping. You I know, know what I mean? I know. You know, there was no farewell to COVID because it's still with us. It is. You know, there it. We go. I know. So, um, but and I bring that up as well because my own experience in the pandemic was, you know, you know, writing and in the beginning it felt irresponsible and just completely out mm-hmm. of touch to write about anything other than the pandemic and its impact. But then quite quickly, we did start to see as a publication this massive interest in in home mixology and oh, buying yeah. oh, things yeah. and how to do. I was then having conversations with bartenders as it looked like we were starting to open up again and get their take on what are we going to look like. And, and across the board, people seem to agree, look, there's going to be this return to the classics because we're going to have fewer staff. Our staff yeah. have left. We can't be too complicated. We need to go back to basics. Uh, that didn't happen. <laughs> <laughs> well, quickly we have forgotten about that. Uh, all of it. Yeah. And now, you know, we've we've got on the one hand white claw and buzz balls <laughs> and, and on the other hand we've got these absolutely baroque concoctions yeah. that you go when you when you go into any bar with a, like a serious cocktail list. Yeah. But one thing we have seen is this renaissance for the martini that I think may have stemmed from that, or I think yeah, may have I, I yeah. think so. And also from uh, there was a definite increase in home mixology. Exactly. I, I, I have a barware line at Cocktail Kingdom, and that sold like crazy. And it's my stuff was is like very kind of out there. It's recreations of 19th century or interpretations <laughs> of 19th century bar gear. It's expensive, and uh, it's not for the the average person, but. Uh, you know, it's for for some pretty geeky people, and uh, that just went through the roof. It was cr- it was it was nuts. Yeah, because people were home and they were bored and they wanted to play around with mixing drinks, and mm-hmm. and so a lot of people learned like to be pretty good home mixologists mm-hmm. during during that period. So, because of that, or with that in mind, I wanted to ask you again. You know, you've been drinking martinis yeah, for yeah. forty years, drink, making them for thirty at least. Um, given the products we have available to us today yeah, yeah the the quality of bartending that's out there and also the the average knowledge of the home bartender is this the golden era for the martini ooh a good question um i think from from one point of view it is because as you said you know all the conditions are there and you can easily get a great martini but i i would i would put it more towards the 1930s 1950s when the martini was so dominant you know, that uh, that was the drink. Everybody went and got a martini. You know, it was especially the 50s. It was the it was the last man standing mm-hmm. of classic cocktails or one of the last. And it just was like radiant. Mm-hmm. You know, it shone above the land like mm-hmm. like a beacon it was like <laughs> martini. Uh, so I, th- I think from a, the, a culinary point of view, this is the golden age, but not from a cultural point mm-hmm. of view. That's a, I think that that's a very good answer to that. And also, I would love your take on this too. I worry whether actually the the fervor surrounding the martini right now mm-hmm. and some of the riffs we're seeing, I've seen smoked salmon infused gins Yuck. and, you know, because people are- <laughs> You putting, can't see the face I'm making. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's not one of approval. I can no, let you know, listeners. No, no. But, 
you know, there's this idea that we want to put our martini on a bar menu, so therefore we need to do something different, and therefore it doesn't become a martini. Right, and right. Long term, does that actually hurt this cocktail's prospects, and will it be one that just goes for the geeks again, or is it I, pointless? I, I, I don't think anything like hurts its prospects long term. Mm-hmm. You know, the martini's never going away entirely. At least not uh, until our culture completely changes, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, like completely changes uh, <laughs> until there's no gin and no vermouth. Uh, but uh, it kind of rises and falls. It in the in the 80s, it was uh, the the you know drinking a dry gin martini instead of a vodka martini was sort of an identifier and a secret handshake. Mm-hmm. You can go, oh, you're one of them, you know, mm-hmm. or you're one of us, <laughs> you know, and uh, and it might it may get back to that, but it's never going to you know entirely disappear mm-hmm. by any by any chance. It can it can be somewhat debased. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Like death in Texas. I mean, there's the, the, the Cajun martini, for instance. And it survived the Cajun martini, which was uh, basically a bottle of vodka with a cap full of vermouth and a jalapeno in it, which is actually <laughs> quite delicious if you make it right. Um, Got to try that one. Yeah, that was a K-Paul. Mm. Uh, K-Paul's uh, Cajun Kitchen in New Orleans. <laughs> that was their, their creation. Nice. All right, then, Dave, how about we do this? We head into the final section of the show where we ask our guests five weekly recurring All questions. All right, let's do it. All right, we're going to kick off with question number one. What style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your back bar? I have probably the most bourbon because I don't drink a lot of it in cocktails and uh, for sipping. And uh, so there's a lot of bourbon. It it, it doesn't get drunk as quickly as some of the others. Uh, Good cognac, I have a very hard time keeping in the house. I drink it. My wife drinks it. Uh, Probably the the category that I have the most variety of and is is probably rum. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a big rum fan. Yeah. Uh, I I drink a lot of daiquiris in the summer. (laughs) Which we're still in. <laughs> Who can resist? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, this this almost this uh, Indian summer as it's sometimes described. Yeah, yeah. We're having this late flourish oh, here. Hot, you know. hot, hot. <laughs> Any excuse for a daiquiri? There and will also, be daiquiris tonight. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not martini weather if you're outdoor. I, actually, it's always martini weather. It's I think. always <laughs> martini weather if you're indoors. Is yeah, the yeah. martini one of the only cocktails that you shouldn't be drinking outside? I've enjoyed them outside, but maybe not in 95-degree weather. <laughs> uh, I, it wouldn't be my first choice. Mm-hmm. But other than that, you know, I've drunk them outside in the snow. I've drunk them outside, you know, in lovely fall weather, sitting on the terrace somewhere. Uh, they're, they're, all, they're, they're always welcome. A good mm-hmm. martini is always welcome. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. All right, question number two. Which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in a bartender's arsenal? Julep strainer. That's my favorite. That's my favorite bar tool. Everybody always like talks it down and throws it in a drawer and doesn't use it. But it, I think it's uh, it, it can be the most beautiful. Uh, some of the antique ones are, and uh, it's just a really simple, easy tool. Nice, easy to clean, also. Absolutely. No, no worry about springs and whatnot. No, no, losing nothing. those. And, no, no, you know, nothing no. gets caught yeah. in it. You know? <laughs> and it's mainly booze that's passed over. It's so a exactly. quick rinse. And yeah, you're quick done. rinse and you're done. Yeah. All right. What's the most important piece of advice you received while working in this industry? Go home. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Go home. You know, uh, what I learned a long time ago, uh, everybody remembers who started the group drinking. So I'll, I'll be the first one to suggest let's go have a drink, even if it's like, you know, 2.30 in the afternoon. Everybody will remember that. 
nobody remembers when you went home. So I'll go home early too. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to stay up late and and do the late night shift. It's funny because there there can be that like anxiety about being you know the first one to go know, or the yeah. Irish exit or whatever. I, I, but I don't you're care right. about that. I, yeah. I just I just go home. Just get out. I, there. I try I try to get home by midnight if mm. possible. That's some advice I've, I I think I should probably take on board more often. It's than good that. advice. Yeah, it it's is. Good. I, uh, I, I heard it more than once. <laughs> <laughs> it took a while for it to sink in. <laughs> yep. All right, penultimate question today. If you could only visit one last bar in your life, and I would like to qualify with that by saying it could be hypothetical. It doesn't need, no longer needs to exist because uh, some folks do feel a little bit worried about mm-hmm. showing preferences there. But yeah, if you could only visit one last bar in your life, what would it be? It would be McSorley's. I'm a McSorley's fan. I've been drinking there for an absolutely ridiculous uh, number of years. And uh, it's it's just my happy place. It's mm-hmm. my favorite place in the world. It doesn't have booze, only beer. That's fine. Mm-hmm. I'll drink beer. I'll eat uh, cheese and onions and hot mustard. And uh, uh, hopefully it'll be winter and they'll have their uh, pot-bellied stove going. Nice. And it'll be a quiet afternoon mm-hmm. there. And uh, I just can't think of a better place to be. All right. Then final question for you today. If you knew that the next cocktail you drank was going to be your last, what would you order or make? I would order a martini served in a 55-gallon drum. <laughs> <laughs> And I'm not going until it's finished. (laughs) (laughs) Going out absolutely swinging. Uh, Do my best. (laughs) (laughs) Well, listen, Dave, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure. I could talk about the martini for hours. Well, thanks, Um, Tim. This has been very fun. mm -hmm. And, you know... So great to finally have you on the show. Like I said, you've been you've been an inspiration for so many of our guests. Well, I'm and very glad about so, that. Yeah. I'm fl- honestly flattered, and it's great to be here. And you know, we'll 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 stay in touch. Sounds great. Cheers. Cheers. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info, but here's the good news: every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on Vinepair.com as a transcript, so you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts, whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seasai, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time.